Hey there, what are you doing? Just looking at birds. Welcome, I'm your host, Chris. Join me as I interview avid birders to learn more about birds, birding, and those who love both. Today, my guest is Holly Kleindienst. She is retired from the U.S. Forest Service, where she had a fulfilling career as a wildland firefighter and fire manager. Holly participates in various bird surveys, including the Audubon Christmas Bird Count. She is a big fan of the eBird database and app, which she will tell us more about later. These days, she can be found leading birding tours, like the one she just finished here at the Sweetwater Wetlands. How is the birding today, Holly? We had a great morning. Uh we have a small group of birders due to the current uh, COVID situation, um, and we're all masked up. But we had over 40 species of birds here this morning. It wow. was really birdy. We had a hard time breaking away to come do this podcast. <laughs> what was one of the most unique birds you saw this morning? We actually had a Hutton's Vireo here this morning, which is not a bird I've seen here personally at Sweetwater before. I'm sure they've been here before, but uh, one we weren't expecting to see today. Nice. When you're out birding, what is one thing you have to remind yourself of? One of the things I've found, I would call myself a hobby birder. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy birding and I do it a lot and I'm enthusiastic. I'm not an expert by any means. And the difference between me and an expert birder is an expert birder doesn't ever make assumptions. They really look at every single bird. So when they see a bunch of house sparrows in a tree, they don't assume they're all house sparrows. They look at each one individually. So not making assumptions about what you're seeing and really looking at the individual bird, that's what I have to remind myself about over and over again. Because I've missed some really good birds before. And people come up behind me and they find the bird. Because so. <laughs> they haven't made the assumption. They haven't made the assumptions that I have, yeah. When you're out birding, what do you enjoy most? For me, when I'm out birding, I'm in the real world. That's the real world to me. And out there, I feel like I am completely myself. I'm out there an observer in nature. I'm part of the world around me. Um, nobody criticizes me. I, I am fully myself when I'm out birding. Really enjoy it. So then you have to leave the real world and go back to, you know, our houses <laughs> and our jobs and all the human contrivances and all of the controversies and all of that that we have. But out there when I'm birding... That's where I feel most like myself. When did you first take an interest in birding? I grew up in a family that was nature enthusiasts. We've got pictures of me as a child out hiking trails. We were always looking at nature. My mom, when we were out driving through, say, Rocky Mountain National Park, I grew up in Colorado, there was always a quarter on the dashboard. And the first person to see a deer or a bighorn sheep would get the quarter. <laughs> We were always looking at wildlife. We always had backyard bird feeders. So I was always interested in nature around me. Um, But it wasn't until later that I really got into birding, more specifically. I was going to ask what was kind of the trigger there. Well, my parents, uh, when they were in their 50s, they became birders. You know, there's bird watchers and there's birders. There's people who really enjoy looking at birds and they look at them uh, when the birds come to them. And then there's birders who are out specifically looking for birds and keeping lists. My parents became birders in their 50s, and they did that all the way to the end. After my mom passed away in 2012, I inherited her binoculars. 
and I had a quality pair of optics then. So then I'm really able to see the birds. So that made a difference. But the real difference for me was that my boss started taking an interest in birds, my boss at work. And he would come in and he would describe a bird to me and I would feel very smug because I'd be able to like describe, he would describe it and I'd say, oh, well, you know, that's a lesser goldfinch. Oh, well, look this one up. I bet you saw a Western tanager. And I would be right all the time. And he started doing it more and more. And the next thing you know, he was coming in and he would not only have seen a bird that I had never seen, but maybe even a bird I'd never heard of or didn't even know was in the area. Hmm. And one day he found a yellow-billed cuckoo, which is this tropical-looking bird. And suddenly it was like my competitive nature kicked in. And it was like, he can't be a better birder than I am. I've been around. I'm, I'm born of bird nerds. I'm going to be the better birder. And so the two of us got into the little competition of keeping a list. And that's when I really became a birder. What happens when, when that happens is you realize all these birds, you, you really comprehend that the birds at the feeders in your backyard are just this small fraction of the birds that are in the landscape around you all the time. I love rodents, too. You can go out and you can go rodent looking and you might see two or three. <laughs> but you can come out and you go bird watching and you see 40 or 50 different species like we did here today. So many. You can go to the Walmart parking lot. There are birds. You can be waiting outside the dentist's office. There are birds. You can be in the middle of nowhere. There are birds. You can be where it's a riparian area and there's water and there's bugs all around. There's birds. You can go to the middle of the desert and you're still going to find birds. Everywhere. That's Everywhere. one of the things that makes it so easy to bird where you are. Exactly. You talked about how you grew up with feeders and other wildlife. When you think back... What do you think is your earliest memory of a bird as a child? You had put that question to me before we met, and I had to think about that one. If I go way back, I remember being hiking up in the Rocky Mountains and my parents being so proud when I would be the one who would spot white-tailed ptarmigan out on the tundra, hmm. you know? And I got, I got positive feedback from that for seeing the white-tailed ptarmigan. So I think that's probably my first spotting of a bird that I can come up with in memory. But I think the bird that really made me become a birder was that yellow-billed cuckoo. The fact that I could actually see a bird like that, this bird with this dramatic long striped tail, a beautiful white belly, a long yellow bill that looks like it should be in South America. I could see one of those right in my neighborhood. And that was just remarkable to me that those birds had been there all along, but I'd never, even though I thought I was a nature enthusiast, they were there all along. You're just finally seeing them. Yeah. Now let's move to our bird segment, where my guest has a chance to share a bit about a bird of their choice. And for this episode, Holly has chosen the greater roadrunner. Where are these birds usually found? It's the iconic bird from, you know, the cartoons, right? With Wile E. Coyote. Sure. Um, the roadrunner is a southwestern bird. So they're starting to migrate a little further east. So they're finding their way like over into Louisiana. I'm not quite sure what their eastern extent is, but they're migrating eastward. But they're in the southern tier of the United States. So the genus name is Geocossacks, which means ground cuckoo. It's in the same mm. family as the cuckoo birds. Mm. They scurry around on the ground. They like to eat lizards. They like to eat bugs. But they're the iconic bird of the Southwest. And I've always liked them, but somehow... Since my husband and I moved here to Tucson, it's kind of been our bird. Hmm. I'm not a superstitious person at all. 
but it's our good luck bird, quote unquote. <laughs> we see one of those like, oh, we're going to have a good day of birding today. We're going to see some good birds today. We saw a roadrunner. When you see them, uh, as far as what they eat, what size? Like you, you mentioned lizards, bugs. How big will they go for their prey? They'll take pretty big lizards. Usually the ones I see, they're the lizards themselves from the tip of their nose to the end of their tail are probably about five inches long. Mm. But they'll go for larger things, too. If you did a search on YouTube for Greater Roadrunner, what you're going to see are these rare sightings of them going after rattlesnakes, usually run oh. young rattlesnakes. But they will eat snakes. They'll eat larger birds. Hmm. Uh, just about anything they can stuff down their gullet, they'll do it. They are, they're like small velociraptors. <laughs> so birds are, uh, they are direct descendants from the dinosaur line. And to me, the roadrunner really epitomizes that that velociraptor kind of action. They are small, fierce predators hmm. that are very fast. Do you usually find them by themselves or do they hang out with other roadrunners? They're not a bird that you find flocking. So sometimes you see them in pairs, but generally when I see them, they're solitary. Sometimes you'll see a group of like three to five in the summertime, and that'll usually be a family group where you've hmm. got the parent birds and you've got the younger birds that are learning to forage for themselves. Okay. When you're when you're out looking for a greater roadrunner, where might you look? Are they hiding in brush? Are they out in the open? Usually you're going to find them in drier areas. Really good places to see them are along the dry washes. Hmm. Places where they've got underbrush to scurry around and go in and out of, but that have open areas near them. Hmm. Um, you'll also see them, especially at this time of year here. We're in the springtime right now. And they're starting to do their breeding displays. And so you'll see uh, one of the, the male birds up in a mesquite tree. 10 feet, 15 feet up mm. in the tree and he'll be, he'll be cooing for a girl. And sometimes he'll have like a lizard to offer her hanging in his mouth. It's oh. very cool to see. I bet. The sound of the, the sound of the cuckoo, the cuckoo, they are ground cuckoos. The sound of the greater roadrunner. It sounds like a whimpering puppy or like one of those windmills that needs greased. It's mm. a whining little sound. It's similar to morning dove, but it's all descending notes. Whereas a morning dove goes, ooh, 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 ooh. very similar, but, but different. Yes. What is something many of us may not know about greater roadrunners? One of the cool things about roadrunners is they have two toes that go forward and two toes that go backwards. Most birds, they've got three toes that go forward and one that go backwards. Some woodpeckers have two forward and two backwards. There are some Native American cultures who consider the footprint, the X, of the greater roadrunner to be a good luck sign to ward off evil. Because if you see greater roadrunner tracks, you don't know whether the bird was going forwards or backwards. Oh. You can't tell which way. So that X of the footprint would be a way to ward off the evil spirits because you don't know which way they've gone. The person has gone from there. Hmm. That is something I did not know about greater roadrunners. <laughs> Before we close, I previously mentioned Holly was a big fan of the eBird database and app. For those of us that aren't familiar with eBird, why might we use it? Well, let me tell you a little bit about what eBird is first. So, Cornell Lab of Ornithology in New York. Uh, is one of the foremost schools of ornithology in the world. And they developed this database where anybody and everybody can log their bird checklists into their database. 
And now they're getting millions and millions of checklists every year. And what that's doing is all these volunteers, all these citizen scientists that are out there inputting their personal bird sightings into eBird, they have this huge knowledge of birds and they're able to map them and follow them and track them and track trends that they couldn't do before. Um, And it's open to anybody. It's not just for expert birders. It's for the new birders as well as the expert birders. You only put in the birds that you can positively identify. So if you go out and you see a dozen species of birds and you can identify three of them, you just put in the three. So it's for everybody. And then every area where you're birding has a volunteer reviewer. So if you do a really drastic mistake, it's going to get caught and they're going to send you a very polite email saying you might consider this and that. And you'll either change your checklist or you might just revise that species or remove that species. So you give back to the community when you put your data into eBird. What you get back out is you've got a list of all of your birds. Plus, they've got tools for finding the birds that you want to see. So it used to be if you were keeping a bird list, you might have to keep a list for your county. And then you might keep a list for the U.S. And you might keep a list for the world. And if you wanted to do that all in one list, you'd have to have an access database with pivot tables and all this kind of (laughs) stuff to keep track of it. And it was a real pain in the patootie. But now you go into eBird and you can just put in their filter and it will bring you up your, here we are in Pima County, it'll bring up your Pima County list for life. Hmm. It'll bring up your Pima County list for this year. You can go back and see what your Pima County list was for 2018. You can compare your world list. Then you can go in, if you're a competitive person like me, you can go into the top 100 birders for Pima County and you can see what your ranking is and see if you can climb your way up into the top 10 of the Mm. Pima County birders. And you don't have to be an expert birder to do it. You can be a hobby birder like me. You can be a bird enthusiast and make your way into the top 10. And that's fun. When you add that little competitive thing in there. So it sounds like for those that really want to get into birding, who want to track what they've seen, it's a great way to track that, but also have a list that goes with you. So I don't have to keep track of a notebook. I can just do this on my phone. I can have this along when I'm out and about in the field. And also, if I'm on the opposite end of that spectrum where I'm not really seeking out birds, but I want to track the occasional bird and I might make a mistake, there's still fail-safes in place to make sure that doesn't negatively affect the community. And it also is kind of like a teachable moment for me. Yes. So I can learn a little bit about that bird at that time. Because I'm guessing they'll give a suggestion of another bird, then I might look at it and say, oh yeah, it did have a yellow beak, and maybe make a correction. The best way to figure out about eBird, it's hard to do with a podcast. I do teach classes on eBird. For those folks that are less than Gen X, if they're going to log into eBird and it's just going to make sense to them, it's all going to be intuitive. If you're a little more intimidated by the website, if you go into eBird, set up yourself a profile, You don't even have to start doing checklists. There are tools to find birds and look at pictures of birds in there. And if you want to find out how to do that, you click the help tab. And unlike a lot of websites, that help tab is really well done. And they've got all these really nice little video clips. There's a video clip on what is eBird. There's one called um, introduction to eBird. There's one how to do eBird on your Android phone. There's one to do eBird, do a checklist on your iOS phone. There's a free course that's three hours long that's called eBird Essentials. You can sign up for that. You can watch it at your own pace and really learn what eBird is and what it can do for you. Hmm. But it's really two parts. It's how to keep track of the birds you've seen 
And it's also got so many tools under the Explore tab on how to find the birds that you want to see or how to figure out what birds you should be looking for. So eBird is just really, really fun. It'll take your birding to a whole other level. Are there any drawbacks to using only the app or only the website? They are two different things. Okay. The eBird website is the whole suite of the tools that are available. The eBird app, the primary purpose of it is so that you can log a checklist in the field. Okay. So that equates to the submit tab in the website. There's the My eBird tab, which is where you can see all of your lists and all of your sightings. And you can sort and filter that every which way from Sunday. There's the Explore tab where you can go and you can look at pictures of birds. You can look at what birds are at hotspots. You can find out what hotspots are around you. Anyway, there's a series of tabs. And there's the Submit tab. Mm. The Submit tab is how you submit a checklist on the website. What the eBird app is primarily for is for the Submit tab. It allows you to enter birds in real time uh, when you're in the field. Okay. That sounds like a tool I might try to use. I highly recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'd like to thank Holly for joining us today on our first episode of Looking at Birds. And I'd like to thank you for listening to today's episode. Please visit lookingatbirds.com for show notes, a show transcription, and pictures of the greater roadrunner taken by Holly. Until next time, keep looking at birds.